Well, let's start with a word of prayer, and um, I'll introduce myself and our topic this afternoon. So, uh, can, I, can I ask you to kneel? You got enough room? Father in heaven, I want to thank you that we can be here together this afternoon to have spiritual dialogue, conversation about things that you've written, things that, that you've blessed this world with, um, and the blessing that we have to reach out to other people. And so we want to pray that you would send this afternoon your Holy Spirit to be in our presence, to be our teacher, our instructor, and to give us encouragement, um, to give us perhaps a, a clearer vision of how you want us to move forward with our lives and to serve the communities uh, that we live in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, so my name is David Obermiller. Uh, can everybody see Let's stand on this side. So uh, I am the uh, executive director, founder, whatever, of Harvest Fields Organic Farm in Fresno, California. Uh, we are a certified organic farm on the campus of Fresno Adventist Academy. Uh, there are a couple other of my uh, colleagues that are here. If they slide in, then I'll make sure to introduce you to them. Uh, but it's myself, my wife, and then two other gentlemen that help run the farm on the school campus there. Uh, to tell you very briefly uh, just how the project got started and, and, and where we're trying to go, um, I was um, a denominational employee for about 10 years. Uh, how many of you, I don't know some of you, are familiar with Souls West? Okay, about six years ago, I was working for Souls West, a little bit more than that actually. Uh, my wife was working there as well. Uh, I spent five years at the school. She was there for seven years because she was there two years before we got married. <clears throat> and uh, I was reading the book Education. I was reading Ellen White's other books on education, you know, Fundamentals of Christian Education, uh, some of her pamphlets and periodicals and different things that she wrote on education. Uh, I was reading some of the educational work uh, done by our early pioneers. So... Um, not only the pioneers, but like Edward Sutherland, Percy McGann, if you're familiar with Madison, they were the founders of Madison College. And I was reading all this material on education, and something was happening on a regular basis. I was always reading about farming. When you read about education, you read about agriculture. Uh, some of you have heard, uh, I won't have it on the screen here today, but what is the ABC of education? actually agriculture. Um, in the book Education, Ellen White highlights quite extensively the importance to education work. And when she says ABC of education, what does that mean to you, ABC of something? Elementary. Fundamental. Fundamental. It's, it's elementary. It's your starting point. Uh, it's your foundation, if you want to call it that. So I was reading all this stuff in the Spirit of Prophecy about agriculture in the context of education was working at Souls West, and uh, there was no agriculture program at Souls West. There was no agriculture program in my life, and here I am on a school campus, and I said to myself, this is a problem. Uh, I said to my wife, I need to learn how to do this. Uh, if, if, if it's, and I'm going to go through some of this this afternoon, but if it's that strongly worded in the spirit of prophecy how important agriculture is to education, then I'm going to step out and I'm going to go learn to farm. 
I had a little bit of farming experience. When I was a kid, my grandfather had a farm, but it was mostly cows and hay. Uh, quite different than vegetables. It was not on a school campus. Uh, it was quite different. Um, but I, I, I knew how to drive a tractor. Could do that much and a few other little things. But I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and try to do this. So my wife and I left Souls West six years ago, almost six and a half years ago, actually. And we went and spent four years on an organic farm in Arizona. And my goal was to come back into church work and put a farm on a school campus somewhere. So I was speaking at iShare, uh, let me see, three years ago now. And a church member, uh, his daughter graduated from Souls West. And Friday morning after I had spoke on Thursday night, he came up to me at the hotel um, breakfast bar and sat down and started talking to me, told me who he was, and we just started chatting. He had no clue that I was on a farm because the night before, uh, I'd spoken on something entirely unrelated to farming. And uh, we just were having a chit-chat. And somewhere along the lines, it kind of just became obvious that I was on a farm. And he said, you know, our school would actually like to start a farm. And my first, I'm going to be honest with you, I've told the school this too. My first reaction was, can any good thing come out of California? <laughs> um, how many of you are from California? Uh, I'm outnumbered. <laughs> uh, I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest. I went to Union College. I worked at Oklahoma Academy for a couple of years. Uh, I, I then was literature ministry director in the Nevada, Utah conference. It was the closest I'd gotten to California. And there are just too many people here for me. And it's a very uh, restrictive state as far as the government goes. A lot of rules, a lot of regulations, a lot of extra paperwork if you're running a business. And kind of liberal too from a Christian point of view. You know, California is sort of the leader in the world, in, uh, in America at least, in liberalism uh, as well as the East Coast. And it's like, no, Lord, you know, man, this is just... Are you sure? Well... Um, I tried to learn from Jonah and not tell God what I won't do. I did tell him it wasn't my preference, but I decided to entertain the school's offer to give a presentation to their school board. And I did that now almost three years ago. And when I was done giving my presentation, I was very, very impressed that this was a school board that was interested in turning back the clock and trying to go back in the direction of an educational system that God was originally wanting for us. And I said, Lord, all right, it's not my preference, but I'll go where you're telling me to go. And if it's Fresno, California, I'm going to Fresno, California. And so, obviously, that's where I am. Uh, we ran the farm through the school for the first couple of years. I uh, was part of the school's budget. I was on payroll, uh, you know, had to go through... Uh, the school board and had a farm committee, subcommittee of the school board. Uh, but about the beginning of this year, we started having serious conversations about separating the farm from the school. And so March 15th of this year, we separated Harvest Fields Organic Farm from Fresno Adventist Academy. We have a lease agreement with the school. So we rent their land, we rent their buildings, uh, we, we farm their land. And we founded the farm as a nonprofit organization. 
And uh, maybe at some point we can, can get into a little bit of that. There are some reasons why we went nonprofit instead of for-profit. The biggest one being that for-profit businesses cannot take volunteer labor. And in order to get the students involved in the school and allow the church members and the community to be involved in the farm, we had to go nonprofit. That was definitely the biggest reason. Um, we are a farm that's about mission, not just about the business of selling product for a profit. Uh, it's a much bigger picture for us than just, just the finances of it, although that's important, obviously. So again, Harvest Fields Organic Farm is a, is a nonprofit farm. And um, I, what I want to talk to you about today is what the mission of this farm is, what the purpose of the farm is, and help you understand why and how, uh, if I can say it that way, the why of what we're doing and the how we're trying to get it done. And so this is a three-part series you've seen in the bulletin, three sessions today. Uh, this first period, um, I want to spend, by the way, is there like a 10-minute break between sessions? Is that what it is? So at 3.20, we're done and 10-minute break? Okay. Um, so this first period, I, I want to really talk about why, the big picture, why this is important in the context of evangelism and our church's mission. I want to move beyond that in the next two portions and talk about the how, the what we're doing, the how we're trying to get it done. And so that's um, a fair summary of things. Any questions so far? You are in a workshop on farming. How are you feeling right now? It's a little awkward? Good, good, good. You know, I was looking at the, 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 um, the booths. And everybody's got their nice banners, and we got pallets. <laughs> if you've seen our booth over there, you can come check out our booth later. Um, a little bit different feel to this this morning, this afternoon. I subtitled this, you know, the main topic is agriculture and evangelism. This is part one. I subtitled this, We'll Be Glad We Did This. If I were to spin that and put it in a more negative way, we're going to wish that we did this. And each one of us this afternoon has to make a decision. Either we'll at one point say, I'm really glad I did this. Or at some point we'll say, I really wish I would have done that. And it's the same, two sides of the same coin. I want to emphasize, we'll be glad we did this and talk to you about why here. I want to start with Jesus's ministry. I believe that Jesus's ministry is a model to us. For how we operate our church ministries, our literature ministries, our Bible work ministries, our health ministries, our educational ministries. Jesus, as a man, is the model man. Now, I'm going to need your help a little bit. I uh, wasn't quite sure what to expect from the projector situation here. Um, and just the way we're kind of arranged, I don't want to try to use the Bible on my computer. And I'll admit that I am absolutely crutched on my computer for all things biblical and spirit of prophecy. And so what I'm going to do, you brought Bibles? Okay, I'm going to have you do the reading of the text of Scripture. Everything else will be on the screen, and that way I don't have to keep stepping in front of the projector here. Jesus' ministry as a model. I'd like to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I'm going to tell you verse 16 because we all know it. 
but then I need a volunteer to read verses 31 to 37. Can I have that volunteer, please? Luke, yeah. Um, your name, sir? Johnny. Johnny. Okay, you got 31 to 37, and somebody 38 to 40. Your name, sir? Andy. Andy? Thank you, sir. All right. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, well-known text to Adventists. Jesus, as his what? Custom was, went into the synagogue and participated in church activities that day. I'm paraphrasing the text. As his custom was, Jesus kept the Sabbath. Now, if somebody would read verses 31, uh, you already got to, go ahead. Okay, before you read, Andy, uh, I want to make a comment here. This is early in Jesus' public ministry. Jesus works a miracle here this Sabbath. What is the result of Jesus' healing of that demon-possessed man? It's in the text. Towards the end. They were amazed, and then what? Okay, the fame of him went where? In the whole region round about there. Whole region. Okay, Andy, go for it. So I want you to use your imagination with me just a little bit. Try to put yourself there. Jesus goes to church Sabbath morning. There's a guy in the church, uh, the congregation, that's possessed with the devil. Anybody had that happen recently? Somebody in the church, Jesus, cast the demon out of the man. Anybody seen that happen in church recently? What would your impression be if you were a church member that morning? What would you go home and tell your friends your family, your neighbors that you saw at church that day. It'd be pretty amazing. It's exactly what happened. So Jesus left church. He went to Peter's house. And what does it say happened right about the time the sun set? Anybody that was sick was at Peter's house. This is, by the way, we are talking about agriculture. It will take me a moment to get there. Follow with me. The report, the, the news, and there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook, there's no instant messaging, no texting, no cell phones. This is all foot traffic and word of mouth. Went so fast and so aggressively that they not only figured out where Jesus was, but managed to get everyone to Peter's house by the time the sun was setting. That's one Sabbath miracle. And Jesus had won the heart of the entire community. We go to the next story, Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Can I take my next volunteer? Somebody read Luke 6, 6 to 11. Chris, please. Who's, who's they? The Pharisees. A little bit earlier in the passage, what does it say that the Pharisees, this is before Jesus healed the man. What does it say the Pharisees were doing? They were watching. Why were they watching him? What reason did they have to watch him? Hmm? They wanted to what? Okay. But what was motivating them? What, what reason? Hatred. Jealousy. Hatred? But what made them jealous? What made them hate? Okay. Haven't hit the answer yet. 
What day was it when he worked on Ah. What Jesus did in Luke chapter 4 was considered inappropriate. It's considered inappropriate. And by Luke chapter 6, the Pharisees also had heard what happened. And now they were watching him to see if he would do it again. Right here, you're going to see a divide. Uh, before I tell you about the divide, let me give you another text. This is Mark chapter 6, or Mark chapter 3, excuse me, it's verse 6. This is the exact same story, but it adds one little detail that's not in chapter uh, 6 of Luke. It says, The Pharisees went forth and straightway immediately took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Who are the Herodians? The followers of Herod. Are they religious people? What are they? They're political. So very early on, what you're seeing is a relationship developed between the religious class and the political class regarding the way Jesus kept the Sabbath. Have you read that in the Great Controversy? Sound familiar? Church and state? Luke chapter 4 says, uh, excuse me, the events of Luke chapter 4 Uh, historians put at about a year and a half into Jesus's public ministry. What this suggests to us is that two years remained on his ministry clock and the Pharisees already wanted to kill him because of one thing, because of what he did in Luke chapter 4 in that synagogue and because of Luke chapter 6 what he did there that Sabbath. You right here see there are two groups of people. You have the general public and their relationship to Jesus. You have the religious leaders and their relationship to Jesus. And I'm describe each one of those relationships to you pretty briefly. The general public were generally receptive. Actually, very receptive. They responded to his ministry of compassion, his practical works of healing, And his instruction. They followed him in large numbers, and increasingly large numbers with each passing week and month of Jesus' ministry. On the other hand, the religious leaders were generally resistant. They were reacting against what they perceived to be Jesus' theological errors, particularly one error, that is that he did not keep the Sabbath the right way. As a result of that perception, they persecuted him constantly and intensely. I'll give you another passage of Scripture. I'm going to change my wording here, and I'm going to say that Jesus' ministry is a foreshadowing of what's to come. The way he lived and what happened to him is what we have been told we will live through and will happen to us. John chapter 5 is the story of the man at the pool of Bethesda. I do not want anybody to read those 15 verses for the sake of time. But if you could turn with me to John chapter 5, we will read briefly. The story of the man at the pool of Bethesda, you're probably familiar with. This is a Passover weekend. There are a lot of people in Jerusalem. And Jesus on a Sabbath morning, apparently before church, uh, from the best we can tell, was at the pool of Bethesda, just outside the temple walls. By the way, Bethesda means, anybody know in the Hebrew? 
House of House of Mercy. House of Mercy. And there was a man there, among many others, who were physically embarrassing. Lame, crippled, blind, pathetic from a, from a physical point of view. Pathetic examples of humanity. There was one man there in particular who had been in a bad case for a long time. Namely, like, his whole life. Uh, or nearly all of it. Jesus found that man. You remember the guy laying on his mat? Great story, folks. I'm going on a tangent for just a second. If you and I have to come to the point where we perceive ourselves to be as wretched as that man was, to get the face of Jesus to look down from heaven on me and you, it is fully worth it. If you have to be entirely crippled physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, a wretched case of humanity in your own mind to get you to the point where God will look down on you and touch you in your life. I say, fine, let me be that guy. Because the other case, by the way, is the Pharisees. They that are whole need not a physician, right? Many of us struggle not wanting to accept, wanting to deny the truth about ourselves. We, we lie to ourselves, we pressure ourselves to think that we're really better than what we are. But it's the moment of need that brings God the closest. And until you feel need, where are you? In fact, it, 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 this is tangent again here, but... Ellen White says, this guy was so bad, he was the worst in the group, and Jesus picked him on purpose, because he was the worst. When you become Christian, you become Adventist, you, you become religious, you're always trying to tell yourself that you're okay. Always pushing reality a little further down the street when the person that God really wants to help the most, sometimes the one He wants to single out and help is the one who's the worst, not the best. I don't know you. I don't know your relationship with God. Acknowledging that you're bad and need help is okay. In the house of mercy, that wretched man got the look on the face of Jesus. And Jesus said, will you be made whole? And the answer for that man that day was yes. Today, tomorrow, as soon as you're ready, can be your day. Praise the Lord. Jesus told the man, rise, stand up, take your bed and walk. He picked up his bed like he should have done. The Jews found out about this. He's not supposed to carry his bed on the Sabbath. That's, uh -uh -uh. That's inappropriate. Verse 16 and 18 of John chapter 5 says, Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Why? Come on, say it for me. Why did they do it? Because they were jealous? They were losing popularity? They were losing credibility with the people? Only reason... They hated and wanted to kill Jesus because of the way he kept 
the Sabbath day. That's it. In fact, this is a very interesting verse. So they sought to slay him because he'd done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered and said, My father works hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the, what's the next word? The more. Now, how many of you just ate lunch? (laughs) If I ask you, do you want more? It implies that you've already had some. So when Jesus claimed to be equal with his father, was that the primary or the secondary motive for their hatred of him? It was secondary. They hated Jesus more because of the way he kept the Sabbath than because of his claim to be divine. As much as they wanted to stone him for saying Jesus saying, I am, before Abraham was, I am, they hated him more because of the way he kept the Sabbath. It was the primary, initial, and repetitive conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees during his life and ministry. They hated him because of the way he kept the Sabbath day. Let's go back to this here for a second. Ministry is a foreshadowing. Jesus' ministry. Mark chapter 3 again. The Pharisees aligned themselves with the Herodians. It's a religious and political alliance. And when you get to the end of the Gospels, just before Jesus is taken uh, by the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, you'll notice that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians all made an attempt to lay a trap for Jesus and catch him. You'll notice the partnership between the religious and the political in Israel that put Jesus on the cross. It is everything that you and I have read and understand about Adventist uh, prophecy, about the great controversy, the book of Revelation, last day events, final events, that there will be an intense hatred for those people who keep what? Including that one, that fourth one. And that there would be a religious and political alliance that would ultimately attempt to put those people to death because of the way they kept the Sabbath day. If I read you some verses here, I want to show you how bad they wanted to kill him. Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, they held a council how they might destroy him. Matthew 21, 46, they sought to lay hands on him. Matthew 26, 4, they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. Mark 3, how they might destroy him. We just read that one. Mark 11, and sought how they might destroy him. Mark 14, how they might take him by craft and put him to death. Luke 19, and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. The same hour sought to lay hands on him. Luke 20, Luke 22, sought how they might kill him. John 5, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus, sought to slay him. We just read that one. John 7, because the Jews sought to kill him. John 7.30, then they sought to take him. John 7.32, this is, by the way, these are separate stories. This is not the same story, same incident. This is a different incident. The Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Those are the guys that were spellbound. Wow, we never heard anybody talk like that before. And John chapter 10, therefore they sought again to take him. Fourteen times in two years that the scripture says they wanted to kill him and, and do away with him permanently. Big question for you. So why didn't they? For really? It just the scripture says that it wasn't his time. Why wasn't it his time? And is God just a magician? Is it arbitrary? Nope, sorry, it's not time. You can't do it.
He had a work to do. They didn't want him to do that work. One thing you learn about God through farming is that God is a God of causes and effects. He does nothing by accident. He does nothing by happenstance. Everything he does is intentional, calculated, planned, determined. The reason why they couldn't kill him is because he had done things that handicapped them. That's what I'm getting at here. Let me read you this next statement. Desire of Ages, page 208. Ellen White says, The fury of the rulers knew what? They were ticked. Hot under the collar. Had they not, what's it say? Feared the people, the priests and the rabbis would have killed him on the spot. But the popular sentiment was in his favor was strong. Many recognized in Jesus the friend who had healed their diseases, comforted their sorrows, and they justified his healing of the sufferer at Bethesda. So for the time the leaders were obliged to restrain their hatred. In other words, what I'm saying here is that Jesus' conduct towards the general public became the reason why the Pharisees could do nothing about him. Despite the fact they hated him, despite the fact they disagreed with the way he kept the Sabbath, despite all the other things that they could put down their list of, 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 I don't like Jesus, they were absolutely handicapped by one thing. People. People. That's it. The reason why it wasn't time is because of those people. Because if it weren't for those people, they would have what? Killed him right on the spot. Jesus does not operate an accidental ministry. If we in our church are operating an accidental ministry, what will our results be? I'll show you how much public favor Jesus had. Same sort of list type thing. Matthew 21, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they thought he was a prophet. Mark 12, 12, and they sought to lay hold on him, but they... Feared the people. Luke 19, 48. And they could not find what they might do. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. Luke 20, 19. And the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on him. But they, say it again, feared the people. For they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. 22, 2. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him. But again, they... And we got one more. This is the last story here. Passover weekend. The religious leaders are all gathered together trying to figure out how they're going to deal with Jesus. It was Passover weekend. And someone said, we can't do anything right now the Passover weekend because there would be a what? Uproar. Why would there be an uproar? Because Passover weekend, there'd be a whole bunch of people in Jerusalem. And what did all those people think and feel about Jesus? They liked the guy. Why'd they like him? He had ministered their needs. He had sympathized with them. He had won their hearts. 
and so they couldn't have done anything in public with Jesus. One more little detail that's also in the great controversy. She says that in the last days, some of us will become our bitterest enemies. Anybody read that? And you realize right after this verse, by the way, right after that verse, a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Pharisees. Let me say this to you. Jesus' public ministry of good was so potent that for two solid years, the Pharisees' hatred of Jesus was absolutely handcuffed. And even Passover weekend, when the, the time had fully come, they were completely unable and unwilling to do anything to him. Did you catch that? I'm going to say that again. Even Passover weekend, when the time had come, his public favor was so strong that the Pharisees couldn't have accomplished what the time was purposed to accomplish. And so it took an inside betrayal, a traitor, to actually fulfill the prophecy. Jesus' ministry to people was so potent, so powerful, so widespread. It was his best defense against his enemies. I want to close with a question. And if you want to ask a few questions afterwards, that's fine. We have a few minutes. But what if our public ministries had public favor? Let me ask that in reverse. What if our ministries only stirred the pot of theological controversy and had no public favor? See, if Jesus had only run around preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he had never helped a single person, would they have cared about him? Would the voice of public favor been there to delay the Pharisees and their persecution? What if our church only followed an evangelism model that emphasized indoctrination and the propagation of truth and the dissemination of ideas, seeking converts to a certain belief system, but never touched people personally. What if we ran our ministries in such a way where the only people that we exposed ourselves to were the ones who were already interested in theological truths and we had no other friends? When that time of persecution comes in Revelation 13, where a certain class of society says, you know, the world's problems are a result of those Sabbath breakers, those ones who refuse to keep the Lord's day holy. You know, if we just got rid of them, fix our problem. What if at that moment there was no voice of public favor that said, are you crazy? Don't you know 
what those people have done for us? Don't you know what they did for my family? Don't you know what they did for my children? Don't you know what they did for my health? Don't you know what they did for my soul? Don't you know what they did, what they did, what they did? Don't you know who they are and what they mean to us as a society? What if that voice wasn't there? And our enemies simply said, they worship the wrong day. They're outsiders. They're causing conflicts. What if there was no voice there? In the context of agriculture, and we'll go into this in the next hour, there is a whole swath of society that we can reach out to and benefit and bless when their hearts their confidence, and their respect. And I would say to you that at that time, they would be a voice of public favor that would delay our enemies' hatred. I want that voice to be there. Jesus' ministry was intentional, strategic. His ministry of love for people in their everyday life was what preserved his ministry for two solid years. We will be very glad that we follow his model of ministry when that time comes. And I want to encourage you that his model will bring the truest form of success. And we'll move into the next segment here. So 10-minute break. It's, uh, well, we got five minutes before 3.20. I don't know if you have any questions uh, if not, we'll take our break five minutes early and, and move into the next session. So, any thoughts or comments or questions? Yeah, AJ. Would you make your, any of your PowerPoints available? Yeah, it'll be available to whoever wants them. Yeah, you bet. So. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the life and ministry of Jesus. And I want to pray this afternoon that we would contemplate, as the uh, book of Hebrews says, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So we consider you and your ministry and how much you've cared for people. We would desire and burn in our hearts to minister like you did and have the results that you did. In Jesus' name we pray today. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.